We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back to another episode of the California Golden Bearcast. It's been a few months since we've taken a little hiatus. Andy and I needed the break. Uh, but if you've read the caption, the title, the preview, whatever, Andy is not here. It's me alongside some dear friends and, of course, fellow members of Right for California, Nick Krantz and hey. Avi Gunath. How are you guys doing? I think we were all just waiting on bated breath for uh, the April 1st men's basketball contractual deadline, and now we're ready to celebrate. Yeah, it's very exciting to be able to usher in more of the same. It is true. We just we recently celebrated uh, by our friend Ben's uh, Twitter handle. Um, he tweeted out, that we have just celebrated the, or it said, happy Mark Fox is coming back for another year day, which was April 1st. So it wasn't a joke. It was, it wasn't April Fool's. It is hilarious how it worked out that way, but it, it, it's not a joke. Uh, right for but for now, yeah. But we do have to talk about basketball for a little bit because we didn't really talk about how the season ended and all that. So... Um, just a forewarning, Andy and I will have a podcast out um, hopefully later this week or early next week about all the news that we missed over like the last three months. Um, and we'll talk about all of that and all of the fan questions and so on. But for this, it's just the three of us talking about basketball and then, of course, spring football and our predictions and such moving forward for the month of April. So it's a little bit more. It's like half sad news, half happy news. So we'll start with the sad news first, and we'll get that out of the way. But we got to talk about the men's basketball season, right? Fox's uh, Mark Fox will be returning as the head coach. We didn't get an official announcement on his return, um, but since they didn't relieve him of his duties and his contract um, year, quote-unquote, restarts every April 1st, it makes sense financially that he's back. doesn't make sense to fire him post 
that contract renewal or the new year of his contract. Um, some news regarding that was Knowlton or AD making some conflicting statements over a two week span. An article by um, Connor uh, from the SF Chronicle had him saying that they were looking actively at a contract extension. And then he had a, uh, Knowlton had an interview with. Uh, Jeff Ferrado of the Cal Sports Report, and he said that he was misquoted and that it they weren't actually looking at a extension, but that all coaches got a one-year extension on their contracts due to the pandemic. Um, we still don't know some of the details regarding how that extension works, but that's just an addendum. Um, the Bears currently will have a full roster despite losing three seniors uh, heading into next year. That's including the two f- incoming freshmen. Um, the Bears finished the season 12 and 20, 5 of 5 and 15 in conference, lost in the first round of the Pac 12 tournament. And out of the two incoming freshmen, one is an international player and one is from IMG Academy, who also does not have any stats from his senior year, from the best of my research, because apparently he was injured. So that is there as well. So, gentlemen, how would you. Uh, Rate is the wrong word here, but what is your diagnosis of three years of Mark Fox basketball and the impending fourth year in about six months' time? Uh, (laughs) I I don't want to say a heavy sigh covers it, but... I think for most of the Cal fan base, that's might be the extent of the time that they spend thinking about men's basketball. Um, meanwhile, I, I've produced a couple columns over the last few weeks that I'm, I'm probably at danger of, of rehashing verbally here on the podcast. But, you know, there's, there's, if the athletic director, uh, if, if Jim Knowlton is, is being honest in his assessment that like Mark Fox is the guy to turn Cal men's basketball around, I don't know what sort of objective measurement he can point to to say that like a piece of evidence that that we can get different, better results from Mark Fox on the basketball court. I just don't see any evidence at all that, that anything would be any different no matter how much time he's given. So it, it's more a question of like, is there some sort of subjective off-court feelings ball reason that we can imagine that Mark Fox might be able to turn comments basketball around? Or are we just waiting until the athletic department comes to the same conclusion that the fans, the stats, the evidence available to us has already shown and borne out over time. Yeah, I think it's hard to really make a calculation on what the Cal athletic department is thinking when it comes to basketball. Um, Because as we know, the program is in still in significant debt and the basketball team has not made revenue. So in the last couple of years, it seems like 
we have made a concerted effort to prioritize the football program at all costs with whatever limited resourcing we have um, and deprioritize other sports. That's just based off of the decisions the team makes with the hiring of White King on a very cheap contract relatively with a very strange buyout. Um, and then the Fox contract basically is much cheaper than both of those. So we are kind of getting the results that we should expect with that contract. Um, is it actually cheaper? I thought we paid Viking a million a year and Fox like one point something. Yeah, Fox's, a year. Fox's contract actually increases yearly too. I'm oh, sorry, the buyout. Isn't the buyout less? Well, yeah, the buyout matter less, unless yeah, we because... actually pay it. <laughs> That's also a factual statement. Yeah. Yeah. So, so technically, we're less on the hook to like let him go, but we're still paying the Viking buyout, which I think ends this year, if I remember correctly. So I don't know what I mean. We don't know what the how the buyout was uh, in terms of like how the payment structure worked. Right. So, yeah, I think we're on the hook for most of it, if not all of it. Um, that's one of the reasons we took our time to fire him the first time. to fire White King when it was clear that he was not producing and he was not. He was basically driving away season ticket holders. But now the football, the basketball team is kind of in a place where it's kind of in net neutral. You don't want to make a decision on hiring a new coach unless you know you can support that coach and provide him with the resourcing he needs to succeed at the next level. So it seems like Knowlton is in a place where he has not really done his due diligence with regards to who could be a good candidate here. Um, or he has and has found no one interested based off of what we can offer. And that leaves us in a tough place, like where we don't really can't afford like a Dennis Gates or a Todd Golden. Um, and we just are kind of left thinking, who can we get at like a bargain price who can succeed and thrive? Yeah. A um, couple comments on in response to that. One, uh, Mark Fox has indeed uh, benefited from the fact that White King Jones already drove off all of the season ticket holders. So now there's nobody left for him to draw uh, to drive off. So, you know, consistency year over year. Um, I do. I, I, I'm trying to figure out the economics of hiring a new basketball coach just because I, it's true that like if Cal is competing with another power five program for any, you know, up and coming mid-major coach who's hot on the market, for example, Todd Golden, you know, I'm sure we weren't going to be outbidding Florida. And, you know, similarly, Dennis Gates this year, we weren't going to be outbidding Missouri. So the key for us is, you know, finding somebody who's has an upside profile you know, either a year ahead of schedule or somebody who isn't going to be hired by a power five conference. You know, for example, we were all screaming for Dennis Gates in prior seasons as sort of an up and coming guy. You, you have to just identify these people ahead of time because as crummy as Cal's finances are, we can still, you know, double, triple, quadruple the salaries that a lot of these guys are making at mid-major conferences. 
Um, so it's about like having an ounce of foresight, an ounce of, of creativity and finding somebody and, you know, which honestly doesn't take all that much. Uh, like we've joked internally and I'm going to joke externally now, Jim Knowlton, you can have the, our, my Ken Palm password. I can give you that data and we can help identify a mid-major coach who has shown the, the slightest bit of, of creativity or, or success at building a program. Basketball as a sport is maybe the most like data-driven sport, certainly the most data-driven college sport that exists out there. You don't need to rely on how well somebody comes off in an interview to, or whether or not the search firm brings them up to decide to make a hire. You can just decide like, hey, this guy shoots a lot of threes. Maybe he understands modern basketball. And that kind of brings me to the second point, which is, are we sure that the athletic department and the university aren't prioritizing like things that UC Berkeley cares about, which is graduation rates and academics. And based off of all the communications, it seems like that is still top of mind, which, you know, it, it's, it's obviously good to graduate athletes, but in a sport like basketball, so many athletes leave early that it kind of leaves you variable to the whims and needs of whatever class you get and whatever talent you get. But it seems like the priority is still to have like very high academic standards and good graduation rates. And, you know, that's a, that's the thing that's going to come in conflict with fielding like a really competitive basketball program in general. Like it would be nice to have those things, but I think we have to really reconsider like what our approach is in terms of like hiring a coach because Mark Fox, you know, he's doing good with the graduation and academics and all that stuff, but it's not leading to winning basketball. Yeah. I mean, the one, I, I think the, you're right, Abby. I mean, just to, just to piggyback off of both of what you guys are saying, like some of the Knowlton's quotes from that article with Jeff Ferrado, right. That I just kind of, uh, quoted and like uh copied the highlights into the article for for right for cal and i have it pulled up here it's uh some of the key points nolton said that COVID 19 contributed significantly to the challenges that the basketball program has faced but it does change the bottom line are we disappointed with where we finished yeah you bet nolton said thursday just as ncaa tournament was beginning play that this is where we want to be playing um he also talks about the athletic department is moving forward with plans to build a dedicated practice facility but the timetable for that project depends on the success of raising money to fund the building and if you followed cal basketball for long enough you know that this practice facility schedule plan dream move whatever you want to call it has been in the works for probably like 10 years or so and hasn't seen an inkling of it being moved at all um so yeah that that would be that's probably pretty huge um and then also this is what nolton said when he talked about the mark fox extension he said we're not talking about a new contract right now i think someone reported i was working on an extension it was that i gave every coach a year um which is weird because he's directly contradicting his own quote like it wasn't like sources heard it was like in connor's article it said like nolton said that yeah so it's a really weird situation um 
Uh, this well, and then there's two more things that he says here. Obviously, I'm very cognizant of fans wanting to see better. He said the thing that fans have to got to remember is when Mark Fox took over, we had just completed the two worst years in our history from a men's basketball perspective, which I think most fans go, "Yes, we know, <laughs> we were there." <laughs> if any, and I tweeted this out on the the Golden Blocks Twitter handle, and you can quote me on it. Uh, but I was like. Dude, we were fans before you became the athletics director and we'll be fans after you're the athletics director. You don't need to tell us that it was the two worst years of our program. We all watched it unfold in real time. Ten years is a long we, time, Rob. He's here for ten, seven more years. We watched one of those years unfold before he was even the AD. So I think we know. Dick Cutchin fans stand up. Mm, God. Um, Sorry, one one last thing I wanted to, and then Nick, you can go. This is the one that like it kind of goes on with what Avi said and what you said about maybe there's stuff behind the scenes uh, in like regards to maybe not just what goes on on the basketball court, but what off of it. He says eight or nine years ago we had a thirty percent graduation success rate for basketball. That is not acceptable. So it just uh, Nolan said. So it wasn't just you're going to come in and all you have to do is win some basketball games and everything's going to be solved. You've got to win in the graduation success rate in the academics. You've got to get the right student athletes, sorry, right student athletes here, and you've got to get all of those things working together so that we can have an exceptional program. Which is kind of weird to pull be pulling up graduation success rates from eight or nine years ago when it has no bearing. That's eight or nine years ago is one, two, it's Monty, three coaches. Yeah, three coaches before this current coach. So, like, I don't know. Like, sure, like, graduation success rates are great, but if guys are leaving for the NBA or if they're going professional, like, wouldn't you call that a successful basketball program? That's just my take on what basketball as a sport and playing at the next level is supposed to be. But I can understand the academic side of it, but it's just weird that he pulled out a quote about APRs from close to a decade ago. And I... I I'd like to see the numbers, I guess, that we're really dealing with right now. Because to be clear, I have no doubt that because that's what Cal has prioritized in a variety of ways, both verbally and like in the contracts that we now write for our coaches. I have no doubt that the guys on the roster are doing quite well academically. Having said that, Grant Anticevich graduating this year was like the first dude to serve out his entire eligibility at Cal since like Kingsley Okoro. Um, most of that has to do with the sheer wreckage that Viking brought upon the program where like everybody that was in the program before Viking left and everybody that Viking brought in left before finishing. But like, so it, it, yeah, I guess I'll give Mark Fox credit for stabilizing the roster, but it's not like, you know, we were great shakes before that. So I don't know. Um, Ultimately, what I see this all as is this central tension that Cal has where um, we like to pretend that what we really care about is academics and graduation and student-athlete experience. But, you know, at the end of the day, this is a revenue athletic department that's trying not to lose money. Have, that has to respond to its customers. And so when push comes to shove, you know, you have Mark Fox talking about how results are unacceptable in the newspaper because 
he can't say to his customer base, yeah, like finishing 10th or worse in the Pac-12 every year is what we strive for. Um, and honestly, like if Cal's attitude is that men's basketball is just another non-revenue program and we're going to treat it as such, I, I would appreciate the honesty and then I'd know what I'm getting into. Um, you know, I speculated a couple of weeks ago that that's basically where this program is now in, in less than until they can hire somebody on the cheap who manages to revive things. So we'll see how long we're sort of treading water at the level that Viking Jones left the program behind that. Yeah. One thing, yeah. One thing just on that note is, yeah, I mean, they covered most of the academic stuff, but I think with the COVID situation and um, Knowlton talking about COVID kind of wrecking like the Cal basketball program. I mean, what was Cal during COVID? What was our record? Like we were, we were like at 500 or just under it. I think we won three conference games. In 2020? Yeah, because we won seven the year before. We won three last year, and then we won five this year. Right. So, like, even before COVID, like, we weren't, we were not, like, making headway. Like, I think the thing Knowlton keeps on hanging his head on, which in all his email correspondence with fans, is we beat Stanford in the last game before COVID was canceled. And apparently now um, the judgment for this program is beating Stanford. Um, a middling Pac-12 program, which hasn't done anything in recent memory outside of one Sweet 16 run. Um, and I mean, it's nice to beat Stanford, obviously, but if that's all we're going to judge basketball on, then it doesn't seem like Milton has a good understanding as to what really matters basketball-wise. Um, and then with COVID, like, it's weird to make the excuse about Cal basketball not having like the resource or the practice facilities like it's not like football where you have to have like a dedicated place to play you just need a hoop and like a ball and like you need to go outside and like shoot three on threes and do like all your drills there's not like this is kind of a thing where bas- Cal basketball is just and the athletic department have kind of limited themselves and like they're they're thinking like they can there's plenty of places to practice um, in the meantime, and find space to, to do that, but they've never really put in the effort to do that. Um, I mean, like Stanford had most of the same restrictions as us, and their women's team won a national championship. So I don't know. I mean, I just it just feels like we're we're pasting over things just because it's easy to do that. Yeah. yeah I mean, if there were, uh, I... On another kind of cynical note, I I feel kind of bad saying this, but like one of the things that we've been kind of hearing a lot following the COVID year is how great everybody's been doing academically, like with graduation success rates and everybody's eligible. And the kind of hidden reality behind all that is during the COVID year, everybody passed everybody, every class, because like functionally, like every college across the country decided that failing people during a pandemic was unfair and cruel, which I think is the right decision ultimately. But I don't think that like all of the like grades and eligibility rates that every school, like every program at every school across the entire NCAA racked up like record eligibility rates, graduation rates, GSR rates, any measure of academic success, because 
functionally, everybody passed every class, regardless of whether or not they earned it. So when the, we hear the athletic department sort of crowing about how great they're doing academically, I, I don't know if that means a whole lot. Like, I don't know. I, kudos to the players for getting it done, but I'm not going to incline to give the athletic department credit for essentially what was the circumstance of the pandemic. Yeah, just one more thing on that is, I mean, this is something that's bugged me since, you know, Tedford, like just this notion that a coach can is responsible for the academic success of a program. Like this is all dependent on the university's like support of the athletic department. Like they need to have academic support staff. They need to have um, learning institutions like dedicated tutors. Um, and that wasn't there during like the 2000s. Like that's the reason like our graduation rate went to the pits. We had no support staff and we had no real institutional support for the program outside of like the bare bones. And that just came in like, because we were spending all our money trying to build the athletic facility. That's where like all of our money and resourcing was going. But now that's that support staff is there and they deserve the lion's share of the credit, not the head coach. Like, well, it, and at the same token, at the same time that we brought on board all of these academic resources within the athletic department was also the same time that we started including major um, academic related incentives in our coaching contracts, which, you know, I, <laughs> I guess it's good. I, I'd rather, you know, spend money to guarantee that the coaches are supporting the academic progress of their students. Like, you know, it's probably better that like our football coaches and our basketball coaches are told you get this bonus if your players stay eligible and graduate so that they're not like, I don't know, encouraged to tell them you better show up for this practice at 5 a.m. or you're off the team. I don't care that you have a midterm the next day. But also like if you're literally paying a coach to, to graduate his players, I, then I'm not really inclined to give that coach any credit for graduating his players. Like it's something that should be part of the job regardless. You don't shouldn't need an incentive to do it. Yeah. I I mean, the thing for me with that statement, it's it like it and it, this all comes full circle, right? Is how many times on Cal basketball broadcast this year did we hear, but Mark Fox has the playing has the team playing real hard. They really they really play hard. And that that the that's the one thing that bugs me, regardless of what sport I'm watching. Collegiate pro does not matter. Playing hard isn't a positive trait. Playing hard should be a guaranteed baseline of being an athlete. And on top of that, most of the guys, not most. I mean, I talk to these, I talk to the basketball guys. I talk to the football guys all the time. I have not met a single one ever, ever that, did not want to give it their all when they played the sport. For some of these guys, they know this is the, the peak of their athletic career. Like, and they're not going to let that go. Some guys are, are more divas about it, but even the guys that are divas off the field will still play their, like their hardest on the field. Like they're that, they're that competitive, all of those guys. Otherwise they wouldn't be playing at this level, which is so, which is why I just, I absolutely hate, hate that that's like, but at the same time you have, you realize like, 
they really they have really must have nothing else to talk about if that's the only thing that they can keep bringing up so like that's that's i mean the the all of what you guys said is right right and the covid thing is like it's weird to me because the the harshest covid restrictions sure there was like there was it Knowlton or someone else that said like when like Cal basketball like they weren't even allowed to practice with a ball like they were practicing outside like on an outdoor court without a ball like that's the city of Berkeley restrictions that were on it so like sure I get that but those restrictions probably were a lot lessened after the 2021 or 2020 2021 season like the 2020 2021 like preseason sure that was probably when the the restrictions were the heaviest um and it was probably the hardest to play mark fox even talked about like how the team wasn't able to eat together so there was no like team bonding um and so on but i'm confused as how that affects this year when there's another offseason in between the two that wasn't really derailed by covid at all like well, we the thing didn't have... is like in the start of the season cal played their best basketball right like they I mean, did we but we we lost our first game to ucsd we did but like <laughs> after that we still like we were like over 500 for a decent part of the season i know it's the easy part of the schedule and yeah we did play a couple of teams pretty well um i think i think this year it was this was like a chance for like fox to distinguish himself and show that like he could produce like a capable offense and it seemed like he had some of that going with Andre Kelly but once Kelly got hurt there was like no backup plan right so he yeah well I think with the playing hard thing um I mean do we I mean we play hard but we play slow like so it's it's like <laughs> it's, it's kind of a back and forth sort of thing right where we're just like okay here we don't have a great team a great amount of talent let's minimize the number of possessions let's play slow at ball and let's try and grind out wins and we grinded out three wins four wins in the last two months of the season so i'm not really sure what this is getting you other than like very close competitive losses that make mark fox look like the team is playing hard but it's just because we've minimized variance and we've made it every game a rock fight, which is not super exciting and not really compelling to watch. Yeah. It's well, so I'll give you guys a little free preview of of what (laughs) I'm going to be like next year for, for basketball. Um, So we're, we're now three years into Mark Fox's, program and every year has been more or less the same which is that cal has been last in tempo in the pac-12 one of the slowest power five teams in the country we don't have a ton of ball handlers on offense so we tend to like funnel the offense through the one or two guys who can sort of kind of create their own shot we take a lot of two-point jumpers we don't really look for very good shots and we're trying to focus on playing defense for maybe the first time under Mark Fox next year, we're going to have like this really sort of unique roster full of dudes who are like 6'6", six, 6'7", six, 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 lots of length, lots of size. What we should do is we should be playing some sort of like 
high pressure, disruptive defense, send these guys with their gigantic limbs at every opposing offense, try to disrupt, try to create turnovers, try to get out in transition and run a little so that we can attack a defense before it gets set because we're not going to have the ball handlers or the passers probably to break down a set defense. We should be doing something unique, something different, rather than just the same boring Mark Fox 1990s basketball style that will you know, eventually go 10 and 20. We won't do any of that. And so I will constantly, I, like, I will try to bite my tongue and not make the same complaint in every post-game report and probably fail a lot because, like, I'll be watching, like, dudes who could be really interesting defensively not be given the, the free reign to do anything interesting on the court. And that's going to be a real bummer. Did Nick just say that he wants to run the Louisville press? Is that what I just heard? If if that's the case, didn't we just have a coach that might be able to coach that? Should we rehire Viking Jones? Is that what you're telling? Is that what you're telling me? With this roster, we should rehire Viking Jones for his coaching philosophy. Uh, if I thought that Viking Jones could teach it, yes. That's the problem. Is it turns out that if you don't have uh, Rick Pitino, you're going to have trouble teaching the Louisville press. Um, and, you know, and, and for the same reason that Wyking wasn't capable of teaching the press is why we won't get Mark Fox doing something different because, you know, I don't, coaches know what they know. They're comfortable with what they're comfortable with. And so they do the same thing. And which is what, which is what makes the, the unique coaches unique. Either mm-hmm. they have something that they're so good at that they're going to succeed regardless of the fact that they do the same thing every year, like AKA Mike Leach and his defense offense or like Tony Bennett and his pack line defense, or their coaches who are willing to expand their skill set and change with the times and, and make any new innovation work for them. Like, you know, coach K embracing the one and done era and, or uh, like Jim Harbaugh remaking his offense, um, and, and you know, finally beating Ohio State this year. There are guys who are willing to learn from their mistakes and get better, or there are guys that are so good at one thing that they succeed regardless of the fact that everybody knows what they're doing. And then there's a whole bunch of guys who do something mediocre and just keep doing it every year, and, there's, and you know what it is, and it's not going to change. And you can either accept it or you can tune out, and most Cal fans have tuned out. It comes down to accountability. Like, I don't think, I think Fox came into the season and felt pretty secure he would be back next year. Um, it seemed like Knowlton and Fox were on the same page to begin with that this is a co, this is still a COVID remnant year where everything is like hampered by tennis balls and tennis courts or whatever, whatever the team was doing. And he played coach that way. He, he was, I did not seem to feel any pressure all year outside of maybe the Stanford game, which he did seem to coach decently well. Um, but yeah, outside of that, like there was no pressure on Fox to really like change up who he was. It'll be interesting to see him this year because this is probably the make or break year for him because if he doesn't coach well, the, then he is a lame duck. And I mean, I can't see an environment where we would extend him if he were to produce the same results. Um, 
it'll be interesting to see if he changes that up too, if his strategy changes with with that sort of thing on him. Like or or is he just like content to ride his way out to retirement? Because there's really nothing Fox has shown at his time in Cal that seems to indicate he wants to be here long term. Like he uh is doing the bare minimum recruiting wise and transfer portal wise to try and stock up this roster. Like basketball shit is not a hard sport to turn over and be a good team at. Like we should be able to find three or four talents every year that could potentially at least get you back. And, and like basketball is like a big thing in the Bay area. Like Cal has had a decent team, at least average for most of our lifetime. So the, I guess the one thing I'd push back on is I, to Fox's credit, like he, he seems to identify the guys he should be going after. Like, you can see the recruits that he offers. You can see the the transfer portal guys who say like, oh yeah, I've heard from Cal. It's just that none of them ever come here. And maybe that's like, he gives them a phone call and says, hey, you want to come to Cal? And they say no. And he says, oh, okay, good to know. And doesn't call him back. I, you know, I, don't, I have no idea how hard he works to try to get these guys to commit. But well, it's also a fixture of his staff, right? Like his yeah, staff is I, pretty old, like Trent Johnson, like this, his was a coach what 15 years ago 10 years ago yeah. at this point like we retired have... and is now the csun coach like that's like the crazy part to me exactly yeah. like i don't know any of the assistants that well but we don't have an ace recruiter on our staff or anyone who's like really well, hitting the trails yeah, coach francis but... is the one that's like should be the the recruiter like that's what it was, was so darkly hilarious last year like we we went into the off season like we're going to find ourselves a transfer point guard so it's like Oh, Cal has offered the best transfer point guard. Transfer point guard goes somewhere else. Oh, like Cal has offered the second and the third best transfer point guards. They go somewhere else. Uh, Cal is offering literally any transfer point guard. They all go somewhere else. Cal is offering uh, bottom of the barrel JC transfer point guards. Point guard goes to Buffalo. Like we're we're out there trying to get these guys, and we fail at every single one of them. Um. So yeah, I don't, you it know, seems to indicate something else is going on or something yeah, is going on. That's where the malfunction is in recruiting, I don't know, you know, because Mark Fox doesn't talk to anybody. But like the, the inability to recruit is, is comical at this point. And like, there's really no excuse. Like, I mean, even White King, like for all his faults, did provide like good talent. And it just, he was just so bad that like it, it didn't stay very long. Right. Yeah, it's an interesting illustration of coaching matters because I think, you know, Viking had on average more talent and produced absurdly worse results than Mark Fox did. Yeah, I mean, but, for all know, the knocks that Monty got recruiting wise, like Montgomery, like in terms of production quality wise, like all of them produced at a three to four year level and were around the program to provide consistency and like stayed for most of Quanzo's term as well to keep um, that talent going when Jalen Brown left. It is kind of hilarious looking back at it now that like, if I were to, if I were to just shrink this all down to very simple comparisons, like Mark Fox is a lesser version of Monty. 
like towards the later years. Like he doesn't recruit as well as Monty or he doesn't recruit like Monty did towards the end, but he definitely still knows his basketball stuff, but just coaching hasn't coaching quote unquote should pay off. And that's what some people say, right? Is that like Andre Kelly and Lars team in like, you got to toss that up to coaching. Do you toss that up to coaching or do you just toss that up to age? Like, I don't know. Uh, but then you look at like Conzo and, and Viking, like they went fully on into into recruiting. They didn't really maximize their talent in terms of coaching, but the recruiting floor was so high that we were able to mask some of that. Um, but I, would, I mean, the, the coaching negative for Viking was so low that it yeah. didn't mask. It didn't mask the talent that was on the, on the court. But uh, it's sort of like everything on a spectrum where like Monty yeah. was a mediocre recruiter, but. He was a solid defensive coach and an elite offensive coach. Conzo was an ace recruiter and an excellent defensive coach, but a pretty disastrous offensive coach. Viking was bad at everything. Mark Fox is a solid defensive coach, but he can't do anything on offense, and his recruiting is, well, we covered that. Yeah, I think it's just... I don't want to to delay labor like over Mark Fox's uh, exhausting '90s basketball, but um, there just isn't really much to sell a recruit on that would excite him. It's not modern. There's nothing unique about it, and it's probably going to hurt your your potential to like be an NBA player if to be like hamstrung in that sort of old school college offense. And it's going to hurt your chances to like be in the tournament, like. That's the reason Matt Bradley's gone left. And like, we need to have an offense that is modern. Like, as much as like Calvin's basketball struggles, and they, they produce something that's modern and is exciting to recruits. And they have the ability to potentially take a big leap next year. Um, but it's hard to see that with the Cal men. Like, we have point guards that struggle to distribute and shoot and turn over the ball often more than they pass distribute assists. And we don't have any outside shooting for our wings. So we just end up dumping it in or pulling up for twos, long twos, as you say. I mean, that's why that's that's why like next year is so weird to me. And this year was so weird to me, too, is a lot of what Mark Fox was saying in postgame pressers and preseason stuff was like, yeah, you know, we're going to have to we're going to have to pass around the ball a lot, play a lot more team ball. But what happened? Jordan Shepard comes in and he takes like close to 30% of all of the shots on offense. Um, or it's like just thrown into Andre Kelly. It's like, it's not modernized at all. He talks about like how the, the roster was like small when he first came in and that he finally has the athletes to do it, but he still played out the shortest lineups he possibly could. It, instead of throwing all these young guys out and he says, Oh, it, you know, it's a, it's about a rebuild. Like this is a big, this is a, a huge rebuilding um, situation then proceeds to play his grad transfers the most amount of time. Like there's a disconnect between what he's trying to sell to the fans and to recruits versus what we're seeing on the court. And he's, he thinks that we're like, we're not basketball savvy enough to know that the things aren't adding up here. Like the only guys he's going to be able to sell like as a grad transfer are guys like Jordan Shepard. Right. It's a, it's a high volume scorer 
and at a Power 5 conference. And if they're at a mid-major, you can say, all right, yeah, come on in. You're taking all the late-game shots. Take as many as you want. The ball's going to be in your hands. There's no one else. And sure, maybe one or two two of those guys like say, okay, we might not win enough games, but maybe I can showcase enough offensive talent to get a call either overseas or maybe to the G League or maybe to the NBA. And that's like the only selling point you have is that one roster spot to be able to do that. But now you don't have that anymore. You don't have, unless someone leaves, and Andre still hasn't said whether he's staying or leaving. If Andre leaves, that leaves one transfer spot open. Mark Fox only has one point guard on the roster in Joel Brown, has not recruited a single point guard to the program since he's gone been on campus. And we're also lacking a perimeter scorer. And then on top of that, uh, in the Knowlton interview, they're talking about guys that are coming in and the they're really expecting highly of the freshmen and up like the guys that are becoming sophomores and juniors to take that next big step. But you don't play them enough minutes to show to see if they can sink or swim in the Pac-12 in a lost season. Like that's my biggest worry is next season. Like we let's say the talent does well and we pull off a couple of upsets. And all of a sudden, it's like a, oh, yeah, he can do it. He can rebuild this program. And we give him, like, another three-year extension. And he has, I think he has, I think they have five scholarship spots to work with for the next for the next season. So, like, this was, like, the, that's what I was, like, when I was doing the math, I was, like, this is the perfect year to make a change if we're going to make a change anyways. Because it re- yeah. it lets the next coach reload into the recruiting class with five open scholarships, potentially more if some decided to transfer out to yeah. rebuild for this year and then for next year, and a full year to make the the use of that class. Because if you right. fire Mark Mark Fox after next year, you have a coach coming in scrambling to fill a bunch of spots late in the cycle. Yeah, which and who is knows also the situation Mark Fox inherited and right. the situation Viking Jones inherited. And when you have these weird transition classes, it, it hurts your program. So um, I hadn't really thought about it in that way before, Rob, but now I am in fact predicting that Mark Fox will be fired at the end of next year and we'll hire a coach too late and we'll have another disastrous transition class when we need a, 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 a non-transition class that will I mean, probably keep kneecapping Cal basketball. So. It's good well, to know to be, what we're to be fair, the, long term. <laughs> to be fair, the difference between when Mark Fox was hired and now is the transfer portal, right? And what the transfer portal offers with the immediate eligibility and so on. So if we did hire a new coach early enough going into next year and we knew who was in the transfer portal and just convinced some guys with high enough talent to come in to make an immediate impact difference, like you could build that roster out drastically differently. Um, but yeah, I mean, the point, the point that you made still stands. Yeah, I think the thing is we need to be cognizant of what we want in terms of a long-term coaching solution. Like, We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. 
Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Right now, we we have like a lot of potential candidates we might want. Well, who knows who's going to come up in the next year. But usually, the coaches we want are in the mid-major level, but might be a little bit of beyond our price range. So among the candidates who we could potentially get at what the athletic department is probably trying to, let's say the salary range is like $1 to $1.5 million a year. That's going to kind of leave us in a place where we can't get the top tier candidates, but we could probably get the second tier candidates. And I guess it's a matter of finding out who would be that best fit, but that gets you back into the discussion of um, the Joe Pasternak's and the Travis DeCures of the world, um, because those guys are okay. They have good years, they have bad years, but they're affordable and they're probably more in tune with like West Coast recruiting than Fox or Jones were. Like, what do we think is reasonable given the constraints that the athletic department is putting on the basketball team? Yeah, it's, it's tough for me to project. Like, going into this season, we, we ID'd a bunch of guys who were sort of intriguing, and those guys all turned into, like, you know, the guys who ended up being hired in this year's cycle. And so, you know, we're going to have to sort of, like, reevaluate who who's the next up and coming sort of coach. Um, but, you know, when you're talking about like from a starting point, you can say like, well, there's Travis DeCure at Montana, Pasternak at Santa Barbara, um, uh, uh, Shante Leggins is uh, in the West Coast Conference is probably worth monitoring. And then there's going to be a whole bunch of guys who, you know, come through with like big seasons that, are worthy of evaluation and ultimately where I fall is, you know, a savvy creative athletic department is going to be able to find those guys and, and identify them. I doubt that we have that sort of an athletic department, but you know, maybe we'll hire a better search term, a search firm this time around. I mean, I think that the last point I'll make is like regarding like Gates and, and Golden, like, not, I mean, we might not have made the finances work, but we sure as hell could have played, uh, played the the emotional, like, and geographical part to our advantage. Like, if we had gone after Golden, I don't think, yeah, of course, I don't think we could have paid as much as Florida paid. But at the same time, like, we could have been like, hey, we'll give you enough of a pay raise so that you can stay living in the Bay Area. Um, we know you love this place. We know your family loves it here. Like, if you want to stay here, like, this is the place to be, right? We can offer that to you. Who knows if, if he would have taken it? I think Connor, meant, Connor put out a tweet after Golden was hired at Florida saying, like, something about it was a missed opportunity because his family and, and Golden both love the Bay Area. So, you know, don't – I think people underestimate the, the like, the, 
beyond just the financial aspect of it. There are coaches, of course, that will only consider the financial aspect of it. But and then, of course, like with Gates, it's it's home for him, right? This is where he played. This is where he he got his first first or second coaching job. Um, so, like, you know, who knows? Maybe he will come home at some point, but I, it's going to be a long while before that happens. But I think we've exhausted the conversation about basketball. I don't think anyone wants to hear or talk about basketball anymore, and we've talked about it for close to 50 minutes. So. Do we have any questions about hoops from – uh, let me check the Twitters real quick. Um, nah, it's, it's mostly about football. Wow. So I say we, I say we get into it. All right. <laughs> real Cal fans. Uh, let's talk about football. So the first part, Will Craig, Maldonado, both have departed the team, uh, according to coach Wilcox today with his like pre spring, uh, press with the media or press conference with the media. Your guys' thoughts on that? I know most of us already kind of know, like, it, this sucks from a depth perspective, especially with Will Craig in the offensive line. Maldonado really hasn't played for the Bears in about two years, so it doesn't make much of a difference from a snaps perspective, but um, still loses depth and experience on that defensive line, especially at tackle. So, Yeah. I mean, I could start with Maldonado just because I think his story is sort of simpler, which is, you know, the classic sort of injuries suck story because he kind of burst on the scene and immediately yep. got playing time as a true freshman as an, uh, on the line. And it seemed like, hey, this is a guy that can we can really build around. And then he's been off and on hurt every year since then. Yep. And injuries, I think, robbed him of, you know, finding out what he could have turned into on a football field. And, you know... From a selfish fan perspective, the good news is we've got a lot of interesting guys on the line. I think we'll be fine. But, you know, hearts, heart goes out to a guy who had lots of intriguing talent and injuries have, have taken that away, and that sucks. And Will Craig is a similar story. A, a guy who highly re- coveted recruit, one of the best offensive line recruits we've brought in in like the last decade. And injuries have been a constant issue for him as well. The difference between Will Craig's story and Aaron Maldonado's story is we do not have depth at tackle. Cal played three guys all season long at tackle last year. One graduated, one is Will Craig, and the other was uh, our our one backup tackle, uh, uh, Braden Roym. So we have like one guy... And we have no idea who else is going to be a contributing at tackle, whether there's like a redshirt freshman last year who's going to have to step in or if somebody from the interior line is going to have to move outside to tackle. I, I, I'm pretty worried about the offensive line, quite frankly. It's a big year for Angus McClure. I mean, this is basically now his group. And yeah, I mean, I'm concerned. Like when McClure was at UCLA, his lines got battered and bruised. He was always better known for his defensive line work um, and his recruiting. I mean, he's been a great recruiter on both sides, but yeah, his offensive lines have struggled. Now, obviously, he was with New Heisel for most of that time at UCLA, and that was just a disaster from start to finish. But, I mean, 
the Cal offense hasn't really proven much in the last five years. So it's basically the same sort of, there's a lot of points of failure on this offense and we kind of need them all to be working in concert with a new quarterback and basically the entire offensive skill position revamp. So if we don't have those things up front, it kind of hamstrings any of those plans to take a step forward offensively. Rob, I don't know if you have any sense, like, from hearing from the team, like, younger guys who might be in a position to step up. Like, I know Ryan Lang was a certainly the right size to play tackle and recruit out of Pittsburgh last year who redshirted maybe mm-hmm. the staff thinks he can step up. I think, I guess the, regardless, we know that it's going to be somebody that wasn't really on the radar last year. Who's going to be playing this year. Yeah. I mean, there's going to be a lot of position battles um, on the offensive line, right? Um, Will Craig's out. So that left tackle spot, Matt tower's gone. So that spot, um, Ben Coleman is, Ben Coleman and Sindrick are probably the only two guys that you're going to, that you are probably penciling in as the starters on the O-line. And that's not even considering the fact that maybe they move around Ben Coleman. So he still might be one of the first names listed, but if you can't find a guy who can play tackle, especially left tackle, um, that athleticism and size that Ben Coleman gives you at guard, you might have to push out to tackle. Um, So, yeah. Um, that's a real kind of a bummer because, like, so Cal's strength last year on the line was on the interior. Ben Coleman right. was good. Cindric was good. Uh, I think Metower Met had some injury issues but was generally solid. And so you, you, you're you sort of faced with a tough choice of either moving those guys to tackle and risking losing what made them successful as interior linemen or bringing on guys who maybe you're not sure whether or not they're ready to take on tackle, which is, you know, anybody can tell you it's a whole lot harder to be a tackle than it is to be uh, an interior lineman, you know, dealing with some of the edge threats that have been in the Pac-12. So, tough. Yeah. I mean, then I think, you know, if we're going to talk about names, I think that people probably aren't talking about now that might be talking about come fall time. Uh, the one name that I've consistently heard from people like just around the program and around the football team is not even on campus yet. <laughs> and that's incoming freshman Siope Vakitani. Like that I that's the that's the consistent name I've heard. Um, whether it's the film, the off season work, whatever it is, they feel like if he can get a grasp of the playbook and a little bit of the technique, not even a lot of the technique, just a little bit. They think that his athleticism and his abil- his natural ability to play the position could probably vault him into that too deep. Whether he becomes a starter or not, I, I, I'm not sure. But the way that they're talking about him makes me f- makes me feel like he might be the f- at least the first offensive <coughs> lineman off the bench um, to get some spells. So that's the name. I would I would put on everyone's radar, but once again, he's not on campus yet, so we won't see him until fall. Uh, but that's, I mean, you ask for a name, there's your name. Hey, you know, I'll, I'll take whatever optimism I can try to scrape together. 
Um, I think you're muted, Avi. You you muted yourself, and then you started talking. Yeah, I think I remember. <laughs> um, yeah, sorry about that. Um, the good thing for Cal is like their schedule is starts pretty soft for the most part. Like I don't think they have well outside of Notre Dame. Um, so they have a few weeks to try and put things together. Um, Notre Dame is soft. <laughs> well, it'll be a low-scoring game, right? So uh, hopefully we can be a we can we can eke it out. But I mean, we there will be an opportunity for the offensive line to get comfortable with themselves, um, even if they are pretty inexperienced. But yeah, I mean, I do fear like a repeat of. 2018 where we're kind of just eking out these 10 to 9 games because Wilcox realizes the offense the offensive line isn't protecting um at the way he wants them to so he just is like all right let's let's play my style of ball the turtle well so i i'm curious how you two each feel for my money i would say that this is by far the most interesting spring practice mm-hmm. since Wilcox's very first season, you know, when we were seeing him install his schemes and sort of deciding how to reshape the team in his own image, because this is the first year where we have like widespread position battles across the entire team, which is in part like just bad news because so many players who were key contributors across the board have, have graduated and we can't rely on them anymore. But it makes for a much more interesting spring practice. I mean, I, th- I think you're right. I think uh, I think this, is, this might be, in terms of floor talent, the highest floor like roster we've had in a while across the board. Like, just on the average of all the positions. Like, you know, like I say this all the time on the podcast, and this is not a knock on the guys that are walk-ons that that end up becoming, you know, huge time players for us because you're always going to want some of those. But we're now in that spot where a lot of the starting roles or even the two deep are going to be guys that were touted at some point, whether as a three-star or a four-star. These aren't. There's not going to be a lot of guys that fell under the radar. Um, and so on. Like these are most of these guys are guys that we won recruiting battles with to get them onto campus. So the floor is higher. Whether that increases the competitive advantage we have at those positions, we won't know until kickoff against UC Davis. But at least for now, like it's going to be really interesting to see. Okay, which talent is going to beat out which talent? Um, and that's that's where the fun is for me. Like I'm looking at this, and you know, we'll we'll talk about all the position or some of our most intriguing position groups in a little bit. But particularly, like offensively, like I'm looking at the running back group, I'm looking at the quarterback room, I'm looking at the wide receiver room, and the, even the tight end room. And I'm going, man, we lost a lot. But shoot, some of the guys that are in that room right now that haven't played a lot, they're going to be fun to watch if they're panning out as we think that are going to pan out. So. I guess, yeah, that's that's my thing. What about you, Avi? It's interesting. We were just talking for 40 minutes about Mark Fox changing like who he is this year. I think Justin Wilcox is in a similar situation where this is the most skilled talent um, he's ever going to have. Like, I mean, all the guys we had in the past were like great, like role players and did their job and they, they were great 
they were great for the scheme he wanted to run on offense, but like we have three to four really talented running backs. We have two to three talented wide receivers who are like highly sought after by multiple like blue bloods. I mean, this is a, there's talent on this squad and if they're all healthy, like we can do some pretty interesting things with this offense. Uh, but again, it's a matter of how willing is Wilcox to kind of freewheel a little bit more and try some, try to make this team more offensive oriented because in the past he's kind of oriented toward the defensive identity and that didn't really change in the first two years of Musgrave. So will that philosophy change with a new quarterback and a new group of players who could provide more explosiveness and um, versatility that we haven't really had the chance to, you know, capitalize on the last couple of years because we haven't had that talent, but now it's here. So, I mean, this is a chance for him to try something new with in a pretty wide open Pac-12. I think that makes sense. I think it's, it's kind of that vein of they were trying to limit as many mistakes as they possibly could over the last few years because maybe they knew that they didn't have maybe the athletic advantage over some of these other teams that they were playing against. But like now you don't have that to fall back on because you have all these younger guys that you've recruited in, they're about to be thrown into the fire. There's no upperclassmen that they, you know, they, they asked to come back like Elijah and, and, and Drayden and, and all those guys, like they're all gone. Like, and Nico and, and Trayvon and Kakoa, like they're all gone. There's not a single one you can rely on now. Every single one of those guys that are going to be vying for a, a bucket load of the snaps, particularly on offense, are guys that have not gotten the bucket load of snaps on offense. But in terms of recruiting profile, we're more highly touted than the guys that were above them. And, you know, if you were safeguarding them from having to play them as a freshman, we'll see if that plan worked out now. So now I think I think that to, to boil that all down, the simplest way to say it is we'll now see this year whether it was a scheme issue or whether it was a personnel issue. Like, I think that's, I think that's clear. Because most of these guys have been with Musgrave now. All of these guys have been with Sermon and, and that defense. They know the scheme. They should probably know the playbook by heart now. And now they just have to go out and execute. And is the talent going to win out? That's the that's the debate we have. And I don't I just don't know. I don't that's gonna be not that I don't know. It's gonna be interesting to watch how that unfolds over spring and the fall. Nick, you got anything? I don't know. Is it time to jump into position group breakdowns? Let is. Well, I don't want to go through every position group because I feel like that would take forever. But the, the one position group that I think, I mean, everyone is asking about that we should at least talk about to start. Punter. Is the court of <laughs> Where is Jeremiah? Where is J. Mike? Where is Justin Baker, the touchdown maker? God, some of the, some of the names we have on this roster are awesome. Uh, but we got to talk about quarterbacks, right? We got to talk about that battle probably between Plummer, Milner, and Johnson is... I mean, those are the three guys that, you know, will be here. And, you know, there there are some other guys like Blake DeBishop and, and some other guys. But in terms of the, the profile, those are the three guys that we think will have the, the best chance as of right now to win the starting quarterback job or even the backup quarterback job. 
Um, so what are you guys expecting to to see out of this? Like, what are you looking for coming out of this spring from that group? Well, I we can start, I suppose, with with Jack Plummer, just because the dude has played college snaps. So, like, we actually have something that we can lean on in terms of saying, all right, what's what's the deal with this guy? Um, he's he's was with Purdue for three years. He got snaps all three years. Um, he had kind of a solid start to his career playing a little bit in 2019. He improved in 2020 as a passer. He had kind of a step back, quite frankly, in 2021, which maybe had something to do with his transfer. He uh, got less playing time as the year went along. He had kind of a kind of a rough two-game stretch against Notre Dame and Illinois um, after a strong start to the season. And I don't know if that's injury-related or what the deal is. Um, honestly, like, it's it's always tough with these things to sort of pull out what is team factor versus individual player factor. But, like, if you're looking at the PFF grades and his stats – He's probably a slight downgrade as a passer compared to Chase Garbers and a big downgrade from Chase Garbers in terms of his mobility and as a runner. And so for a guy who is three years into his career, um, presumably learning a new offense, you know, I, I sort of lean towards he is who he is at this point. And expecting him to be like a difference maker strikes me as unrealistic. And if he ends up winning the starting job, I, I imagine he won't be a problem. Like, I don't think he's going to throw a ton of picks or, or, you know, be a disaster or anything. But to me, it would say something a little bit concerning about Cal's quarterback recruiting and development if a quarterback like Jack Plummer comes in as a transfer and immediately wins the job. Yeah. Same, same uh, basic thoughts. I think the big thing Cal has to face right now is we're kind of thin quarterback recruiting wise right now um, because like we did, we did get our quarterback at the very end of last cycle, but it it's still unclear like what his level skill level is. since I think he came from, not one of the more competitive leagues in Florida. Um, so we're going to, it's, 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 it'll be more of a project, I think, unless he is a amazing breakthrough. Um, so we're kind of like, if Plummer, if Plummer wins this job, we have to be concerned about where we stand pipeline wise. Are we going to keep on dipping into the portal every year to get a quarterback? Um, I know that's the way of the world now and like transfer portal quarterbacks are probably more reliable than high school uh, recruits on the average now at this point. But yeah, I know it's, it's, it's one of those things where Cal can get results every now and then, but it's hard to get like a reliable portal quarterback every year to lead your offense, especially one like Musgraves, which is far more com- complex and pro style than your average college offense. So it's not easily a plug-and-play situation. So if someone like Milner or Johnson, who have been here two years now, 
can't like figure out the playbook. Um, if at least it, it's a twofold issue, you're having trouble recruiting quarterbacks, and is the system too complex for your quarterback to break down? Like Chase Garbers was a better quarterback under Bill Baldwin at the end of his tenure than he was at the end of Musgrave's tenure. Like he was, he wasn't like, you know, an NFL starter, but he was definitely more reliable and consistent than he was the first six weeks of the season. So that leads you into another situation where you're thinking about, is this the right offensive play caller? And is Wilcox good at evaluating who should be helming the offense? Those are a lot of philosophical questions that we have to delve deep into, but I think this quarterback decision could play into all of those things. And on the flip side, it's like I gave the reason why you, it's concerning reflection of the health of your offense. If, if a transfer quarterback with an iffy track record takes a starting job. So the guy you want to reflect good health in your quarterback room is, is you want Kai Milner to win the battle because he's a high three-star, nearly four-star consensus recruit with five Pac-12 offers and 11 high major offers. The guy that your new offensive coordinator specifically went after and got to, you know, be his quarterback of the future at some point, presumably if he was the guy that ended up winning the job, you would say, Hey, that's, that's normal process for a college offense to, ID and develop that guy so that he's ready to start uh, by this point in his career if called upon. And we'll, we'll start finding out during spring practice whether or not he's ready. It's more exciting if Milner is is the guy because then you have someone for two to three years who can like really leapfrog the program. Like ev- Everything I've heard is that Milner is that dude. And just and just like someone who everyone is wowed in in his practices and has the natural arm talent, has the skill set to be like the the more the most athletic quarterback we could potentially have under the system. And if you pair that with all the other athletes we have, suddenly we have an offense that's exciting and we'll bring fans back and we'll get everyone super stoked to go to Memorial Stadium every weekend. But if you have Plummer who, I mean, I'm, if he's good, then we'll be rooting for him, but it's not going to excite anyone. It's just kind of more of the same kind of like 20 to 17 type of football. But it could work. if it wins games, then um, all for it. Whatever, whatever, whoever's playing the best, as usual, as the coach would say. After all that, Zach Johnson's going to win the battle now, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we did Zach. So we did Zach so much. He was first uh, on the depth chart, right? Yeah, no, it's it's, it's worth mentioning. It proved us eggheads wrong. <laughs> this is true. Um, all right, yeah, I think we're all on the same page in terms of quarterback. Um, I think we all can kind of agree because we talked about Will Craig. Our biggest worry position group is probably the offensive line at this point. Um, so yeah, I think we're all yeah. nodding. I think we're all in at tackle specifically. Like, yeah, I think if we kept the guys who played on the interior of the line in the interior, I wouldn't be worried about those positions specifically. But we might not be able to because it's just not clear. Like, what was kind of scary about last year is Cal's tackle depth chart was 
Will Craig and Valentino Del Toso as the starters and Royam as the only backup for both positions, there was never anybody else listed on the depth chart. Yeah. So, like, luckily, you know, Cal made it through the season without needing to call on anybody else, but it's sort of like, but who's who's left? Like, I, who on the roster does this does the coaching staff think can play tackle? I kind of assumed that with the Will Craig's injury history with Del Tosa graduating, that Cal might really go hard after a tackle in the portal. Um, to the best of my knowledge, we haven't brought anybody in. Uh, please, if I'm missing something, correct me. But so, you know, the implication is that we're going to be filling these spots with players on the roster. Maybe that guy exists. I just don't know who it is. Yeah, I think, I think with the offensive line, it's it, we're probably we're going to have to rely on that uh, 2020 class. Someone's going to have to break through. I'm just going to just quickly look through the names like Lang. Um, Yem to guard. Yem to guard. Bastian Sweeney, like they're all in the depth chart, like the second and third spots. Um, and yeah, those, those, the guy, one of those guys is going to be on the depth chart regardless of their talent level, because no one else is there. It's possible. We might go back to the portal after spring when some O-linemen don't win jobs at um, top programs, but yeah, it's seeming like these are the guys we have. So I do wonder if this kind of hampers what we do with our tight ends this year, if we'll start running more max protect and keeping guys back to block because that's where we need them to be. And then we have to just use like our wide receivers um, as our primary vertical weapons with maybe some stuff from the running backs as well. But yeah, it does sink. It does put more stress on, our skill produce our skill wide receivers to really stretch the field and force teams to play, force to play their their linebackers and everyone on the backside further back. Um, because if they don't do that, then we're going to be getting a, a lot of rush. It's situations like these when you start to realize the appeal of the Mike Leach pure air raid offense. Hey, offensive lineman, um, all you need to learn how to do is pass block. And also, you don't need to pass block for that long because the ball is going to be out in three seconds. Just, just push them. Just push them, and then just wait. Yeah, just it, be really, in their it really way. solves a lot of challenges with with uh, one of the tougher position groups to build successfully. Yeah, let's not talk about the other side. Although I guess Leach had good defenses. Um, we never were able to. Well, he had him with 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 Grinch, sure. Yeah, uh, Grinch's. At a place where he can recruit a lot better talent now. So, anywho, um, yeah, I think we we're all on the same page with that. But moving on, what do you think the deepest position group is? Like the one where we have so much talent there that it's not too much of a worry. Oh, I mean, secondary. I think that's ultimately the correct answer. Oh, really? Wow, different different picks than I have. I, I you could you could buy me an argument for the defensive line with Brett Johnson back, but I, I'm ultimately going to lean towards the secondary, partly because Daniel Craig is coming back. I, I, I 
if Craig uh, left after what? Are you talking about 007 or? I think he's talking about Which, Daniel Scott. Daniel Scott, <laughs> Will Craig. We do have Will, a Craig Will Woodson Scott. in the God secondary. <laughs> There's a but significant yes. amount of depth with that unit where we have like we have transfers from power five programs who are probably not even going to see the field. Like, I don't think Ray Woody has seen like a lot of snaps and he probably might not see a lot this year because of Scott and Woodson. But I mean, we just, we've always had solid secondaries. It's been the front seven where we've had more of our depth issues. Um, but I mean, we have basically two guys who are, I wouldn't say a, going to be draft worthy but it's going to be pretty close in scott and uh lumagia and then gamble and woodson are just solid guys like they've they've been pretty productive when they've gotten to see the field i and, mean we haven't you haven't even mentioned isaiah young who came on towards right. the end of the end of the second half of last season too yeah we have so many options to play nickel and dime formations with the unit we have and there's really not that many good offenses in the pac-12 this year so they're going to have a pretty solid time to to kind of like do what they want to. Um, so if they just get a little bit of pass rush up front, they could be pretty takerish this season. Yeah. Or mentioning guys like uh, like Miles Williams, who flashed in limited action last mm-hmm. year at safety, and might get more playing time. Caleb Higgins, who a lot of the recruiting experts are really high on. So. Yeah, there, there are a lot of potential solutions in secondary, and we're bringing back guys who already have proven it on the field and to a pretty good degree. I mean, yeah. they do say that it's the hardest position to play on the football field. So, Rob, was your answer going to be linebacker? My my answer was inside linebacker. Um, I I mean, yeah, I mean, you guys are all nodding. So, like, I'm not going to have to sell you too hard on it, like, we have basically a, a two deep plus plus one in terms of the depth. Like the we have we have guys that have gotten a bunch of the snaps over the last two years. Um, ISF had a little bit of a sophomore slump, but he looked like he was getting back into form towards the end of last season. Um, just because he did have an injury good like halfway through fall camp, so who knows like when he was fully recovered and if he never got into game game shape um trey pastor looked like he was getting more comfortable playing inside than he um after making that switch from safety and and then you got the two guys behind him in uh nate Rochena, who seemingly plays coverage like a defensive back but is that inside linebacker like he has an incredible knack for like where the ball is going to be and to like high point it um, and then Oladeo, like, I don't know where Oladeo, he might actually move outside. Um, but, you know, even if he stays inside, like, that's, that size is, you know, can't teach size. And then the last name, like, we forget, like, from last fall is Ancelotos, who was arguably the best inside linebacker in fall camp prior to that injury. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if he can get back to that level. And then, of course... Jackson Sermon. Um, is it Jackson Sermon? Did I get that name right? There's so many sermons. I think That's it's the Jackson one. Sermon. Jackson Sermon's the one. The leading tackler for UW last season. And now he's with us, like playing inside linebacker. So yeah, 
we they could afford to move Oladejo outside if they really want his size and, and length there because you brought in a guy like Jackson and you're seeing Ancelotti's recover from that injury too. So there's so much proven talent there. Uh, we haven't mentioned Trey Pastor. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I mean. There's so much proven talent and enough e- experience and snaps in meaningful games that it's not just flashes. It's like you have stats and you have like legitimate PFF grades if you wanted to go that route. My, my one question there, well, it, it's sort of, I guess, a, a matter of what you maybe value more because what, like what the secondary has maybe is um, really high level starters, but some more questions at the backup positions for guys who maybe haven't seen a ton of the field. With inside linebacker, you have a ton of guys who have gotten playing time because of various injuries and rotations. And they're all solid. And what we what will be the job of the coaches to figure out is who's ready, if anybody, to take that next step from solid to like game changer. Uh-huh. Or alternatively, who can maintain that solid performance if they're moved to outside linebacker, which you know, in in uh in Wilcox's defense, you know they're asked to do different things, and so you know, who knows if if that skill set will transition? Because, yeah, if we were to talk about shallowest position, unfortunately, outside linebacker would be in the conversation there right now. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing with the outside linebacker because I think there is it has the most raw talent. Like there are three mm-hmm. freshmen who I could see playing three to four years at Cal um, in Wilkin, Derek Wilkins and uh, Caleb Alarmzor and Patrick Hisataki. Like those guys are all ready and they're all going to probably get snaps this year. Um, but this might, they might, might not be ready to take that full level. So if they like pan out, then suddenly this Cal defense goes from um, pretty solid to monstrous, which I'm pretty excited about. But if they're not ready, then yeah, some of those inside guys are probably going to have to spend some time on the outside. And then the inside sort of strength kind of dilutes a bit. and It's not quite as strong a unit. And you have some guys who are playing out of position and then suddenly the defense isn't quite as um, you know effective in rushing the passer and doing like intermediate pass coverage routes and breaking stuff up the way we'd like them to. But yeah, I mean... DOLB, like the the edge outside linebacker position, has like the highest floor, but also the, the lowest ceiling, I think, on the defense. The highest, you mean the highest ceiling, but the lowest floor, right? Sure. That sounds, that sounds, <laughs> that sounds better. I'm still, think, think I'm still right, thinking, I'm still thinking of Mark Fox. Uh, <laughs> raise the ceiling. Raise the floor. Uh, well, I mean, that that was my next thing that I wanted to ask you guys. Like, which position group do you think has the highest ceiling? Ceiling? And this is a, I mean, we've talked so much about the defense. Like, we're not even – we haven't even talk, talked about the offense outside of quarterback and offensive line. But, like, on the entire team – I mean, should we go entire team or should we go on both sides of – like, one side of the ball? I mean, I still think it would be defense because – I've never, we still have not seen like an elite offensive unit with Justin Wilcox. And I'm not, Mm -hmm. even with the talent we have on that side, I'm pretty bearish 
No pun intended. On um... yuck, 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 yuck. <laughs> no hey, hey, Abby. Yeah, it's uh, it'd be it'd be it'd be stunning to see like the guy that uh, suddenly we break out like a top twenty-five offense. Um, so I would probably go in terms of highest ceiling our defensive ends with a uh, with Xavier Carlton and Brett Johnson. Good God! You know, like Carlton. I mean, he didn't crack the Utah roster, but I'm pretty sure he would be starting in any other Pac-12 roster. So he is ready and willing. And then, I mean, we haven't seen Brett in almost a year and a half. So those are two, like, really talented guys who can, if they can get the pressure on the edge on their own, then suddenly this defense is just explosive in so many ways. Like, you can do way more... You can do way more packages with the outside linebackers. You can run more nickel blitzes because the DNs are occupying pressure up front, and then you can have the inside linebackers crash more. And yeah, it gets more exciting if you have edge rush on the defensive end side with that three four. But yeah, I think with Johnson, Carlton, and then Saunders and Roberts are capable guys, and Darius Long has seen time, and yeah, Derek Wilkins. It might be his year too. That's different from my pick. I, I think for me, the highest ceiling, I guess my pick was before the offensive line, like with the Will Craig news came out. But I think the highest ceiling for me is at running back. I think it's it's probably the most athletic running back room we've seen, like raw athleticism wise on paper uh, in the last, I don't know, I I, I dare say like seven years. Like just from top to bottom, like we have four guys in there right now that could probably end up being the starter. Like Damian Moore returns, um, like despite some of the issues he had last year, you have Chris Street, you have DeCarlos Brooks, like there are so many guys in there that can play crazy, crazy fast and play very different styles of running too. We haven't had that home run hitter, right? We haven't had that guy that we just get solid blocking on one, one gap and he is through that hole and he is to the end zone. Like we haven't had that guy. And I don't know if that's a, once again, was it a scheme issue or was it an ex like an experience? And we're trying to limit the number of like mistakes, but like Damian Moore, kind of showcase that remember that Stanford run that you know that got pulled back you know the big game in 2020 like that those were the moments where we kind of saw like oh this is the next generation of Cal running backs good Cal running backs that we've had but like you saw Chris Street do that a bunch of times breaking tackles last year to Carlos Brooks got a few snaps where you we saw that flash and then you look at their high school tape and you look at the high like what they did in high school in terms of statistics and you're like damn like if they can replicate just some of that like we have a three-headed monster at running back where they all do different things and they're all ridiculously effective. Um, so that's my hope is that just one of them takes that like next step and just is just just out of this world, gives us that home run threat at running back. I yeah, think that's I, a fair point. Yeah, I think – um, oh, sorry. Go, go ahead, Abby. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I think with running back, it's um, 
they're really talented. Like I have no doubt. Like Moore is, if he's healthy, he is probably the most complete back we've had in nearly a decade. Um, and then Street has shown flashes. Brooks has shown flashes. I guess where I'm kind of reluctant to say that they're like ceiling raisers is they haven't really produced much like, and they haven't been able to overtake guys on the depth chart who are talented like Dancy and Brooks, but not really game changers. Um, so I'm actually interested in Ashton Stredick because he seems to continue to get a lot of buzz to be like that Patrick Laird type who kind of breaks through and it's just kind of surpasses everyone. Um, and then Jaden Ott, who I think is yep. playing the spring. You talked about Jaden Ott. Yeah, he is. So those are seeing those new faces is interesting because I th- I think with I think with the way we play football under Wilcox, he really values ball security, blocking, and maintaining um, that sort of versatility to be a pass pa- pass uh, catcher as well. So it, it kind of reduces like the uh, focus on just being like super explosive, one touch and gone. Um, I'm hoping he's more willing to spread the wealth with more weapons to choose from, and definitely more skilled players. But yeah, it's still it's still like a concern with no certainty as to how good the offensive line is and where the running backs kind of stand in terms of like the current the current troop. Yeah. I'll admit that I sometimes like err too far on the side of the the analytical like running backs don't I don't want to say don't matter but are like the least important position group because it's so blocking dependent. And you kind of you saw that in Cal's PFF numbers this year where the running backs consistently graded out really highly in terms of like hitting the right hole breaking a few tackles, falling forward, all those things that running backs can control. And it's just that, you know, running backs can't control enough that their excellence was enough by itself. Like Cal's blocking just wasn't consistent enough to to do more than that. Um, And I worry that that's ultimately going to be the story next year is that the running backs all grade out really well if you dive into the tape but it's not going to matter because the line might not be ready to really pave the way for them and hopefully they're so brilliant that they stand out anyway but i guess we'll, we'll, we'll start to get a sense of that uh in uh, the next few weeks yeah i mean i think that that's that's the big thing with that group is that just like we were talking about like angus mcclure you know like angus mcclure and aerosol thompson should be tied at the hip right now because like these, this is like a real make or break year for both of them. Like Aristotle Thompson, like didn't recruit well when he first got here, but then that has picked up significantly over the last two cycles. And now there's no logjam at the front. There's no Chris Brown. There's no Marcel Dancy. There's no more experience up there. Like now it's your guys that you can pick and choose to play who you want. And Angus McClure's guys are going to have to block for these guys in order for them to see the fruits of those recruiting battle wins. So like, yeah, you, those two groups like need to play extremely well together. So 
Yeah, I, I think Nick, you're right. I mean, we don't we don't always want to see running backs have to make something out of nothing. Um, but if we can consistently see them hitting the right holes, I think that's coaching. Um, all those little tendency things, that's coaching. But ultimately, that big play is the execution of the scheme and getting the the four or five yards per carry type of games. The running backs have been playing better, I will say. I just think, like in general, the Cal offensive line has not performed very well since even even with Greatwood. Like they've struggled a lot to in either one aspect or both aspects. I think with I think with Mus with us, sorry, not Musgrave. Um, with um McClure, they've struggled a lot with um the the pass blocking side of things far more. Um and with Greatwood, there was just a lot of struggle in general. And I think I think if we if, if we're if we're thinking about offensive philosophy this season, with we're either breaking in a new quarterback or who's either inexperienced or overexperienced, it'll be interesting to see what philosophy we take as a team. Like we've tried to opt toward balance where we're like passing the ball X amount of times and running the ball X amount of times. And sometimes to Nick's chagrin, we're passing it the exact situation that we all predict in the stands. Um, hopefully we'll be able to be a bit more variable with that, with a, with a new quarterback. But I'm, I think Nick, probably one thing you're concerned about is if we have plumber out there, we'll probably be ampling towards the same tendencies that we've had the last couple seasons. Yeah, I, I mean, what was frustrating at times for the Cal offense last year and some other years under Wilcox is the feeling that um, they weren't necessarily maximizing the talent they had and or like deploying them in the way that would be ideal to match their skill sets, that sort of a thing. I mean, this year, there's just so much turnover on the roster like like I, I i said basically that we played 15 players meaningful snaps on offense last year which was a reflection of how veteran the offense was and also how healthy the offense was that we didn't have to have backups taking snaps after all the graduations and transfer portal departures and injury retirements we have two interior linemen and a running back returning that's it so it's going to be a lot harder for us to evaluate the offense in terms of like maximizing talent and maximizing skill set because we haven't seen most of these guys play. So uh, it, it's going to be a real learning experience for us who are trying to like analyze and understand this team. I'm going in mostly dark. Yeah, so Rob, you might be right by default because I think we might be running way more than... Uh at least to start the season as we try and figure out who who is really the steward of the offense. I don't always want to be right, but sure. In this case, I will take it. Uh, gents, we've been talking for a, a little over an hour and a half. I don't want to keep you on for too much longer, but we have three questions from the fans on Twitter. Um, I'm going to skip over it kind of if we've already kind of talked about it, but. We'll start at the top. We got uh, at Rhodes Road. He says, how do you see the composition for QB1 unfolding between now and Davis? Is there someone already penciled in or is it more of an open competition? Uh, I'll answer that. 
I think it'll be an open comp. I mean, I think it is an open competition. I severely doubt, unless someone blows everyone else out of the water, that they'll name a QB one at the end of spring ball. That'll carry on into at least the first two weeks of fall camp. Um, and we probably won't know just because we know Coach Wilcox's MO in a little bit of gamesmanship and forcing the other team to do even just a little bit more work. Um, so, yeah, we might not have a starting quarterback named until game day or even the week of. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I'll even go so far as to say that I think there have been situations where everybody could reasonably guess as to what decision the coaches were going to make, but they didn't say it because of gamesmanship or whatever. I think this year they won't say it, and I think they'll be being honest about it. Yep. I, think, I think you're going to see a lot of or on the depth chart. <laughs> and like honest ors where they really don't know the answer. <laughs> but I also could see a situation um, like, I'm trying to think, when was the last time we had quarterbacks flip back and forth? It was the, two, it was the McElwain season. 2018? Yeah. 2017? No, 2017. Because that was the Ross Bowers UNC. Oh no, that was, that was at UNC, right? 2018. 2018 was Ross Bowers here against UNC. And then afterwards, we saw th- four different quarterbacks. Garbers, McIlwain, who was the four? Forrest. Oh, Forrest. <laughs> okay, how can I forget? Yeah. But yeah, I think we could see a situation where quarterbacks go back and forth because no one distinguishes themselves. Um, and yeah, we could just see like a situation where we just go with the proven quarterback for a while or we try out the young quarterback depending on the opponent. Um, I am hopeful that Milner gets it just because it would be nice to see him break through at the beginning. Um, but I, I'm not going to root for anyone other than who's playing the best. So Plummer will probably be the favorite just because of the reps and the experience, but I don't expect him to be clear heads and shoulders above everyone else. Um, all right. We'll move on to the, the last two questions. Uh, the offense was largely de- – oh, this is from John John Clemens on Twitter. The offense was largely dependent on timely chase runs last year. What's the biggest change that would help offset that this year? Or is the answer simply another quarterback who can run? Yeah, that's, that's something that, that worries me as well just because, you know, for the better part of – the entire Garber's tenure, you could argue that Garber's scrambles, whether designed or improvised, were you know the most efficient plays that Cal ran, and it bailed out a lot of problems that the offense had otherwise. And they're gonna have to find something else. And you know, I would ideally you you would say that it would either be discovering a more consistent running game or unlocking the big play potential from Cal's uh, talented younger wide receivers who haven't had a chance to play yet. You know, we, we call him the touchdown maker, but he hasn't had the opportunity to make any touchdowns yet. Um, of course, all that kind of, both of those answers sort of depend on an offensive line being able to either pass, protect, or run block. So, you know, it always comes back to the trenches in the end, doesn't it? I think one of the things with Garbers, um, 
that we that we uh, we we obviously love the scrambling and all the the hustle that he put into a lot of his production is that it kind of masked the fact that he had trouble reading the field and making the proper like deep throws or intermediate routes like we missed a lot of like if you watch some of the tape from like Wazoo and Oregon and all the games that were winnable but just fell out of reach like there were there were times when players were open and garbage just couldn't see them or just missed them um and he made up for that by like scrambling a lot and getting first downs and making something out of nothing so i think one thing that hopefully with milner and plumner is we have two guys who are more able to complete downfield passes um plumber is definitely taller definitely will be able to see the pocket more and be able to view the field if um he kind of recovers from his produce lump to be able to iron out some of those throws further down and then milner obviously is just an an athlete who if he has the the playbook down should be able to produce and at a higher level than garbage did from the pocket or at the very least replicate his scrambling ability so yeah i think it's just a matter of like having a quarterback who can kind of see the field read the field better get get like deep plays like we have struggled with explosiveness for the last five years we need to have more explosive plays whether it's from the run game or from the pass game and hopefully a better quarterback or more explosive running backs can do that all right last one uh this is a pretty general one though what do you expect from the Cal football team this year? And what do you want to see? I expect six and six plus or minus a game. And I hope for more than I hope for a winning Pac-12 record. (laughs) Yeah, I think this is is a pretty, this is a season where we could actually really like go up or down and it probably will just even out to six and six again. But like we have the capacity to be, bad we have the capacity to be good if everything comes together or we could just be the same team we've always been where we just kind of come back to the median um this team is not going to win the pack 12 i'm just gonna make that prediction right now um there's a lot of young guys a lot of players who haven't seen the field in a while or are just starting to see the field this is a transitionary team for a lot of the units if we win the Pac-12, I would be stunned. If we get even close to winning the Pac-12 or competing for it, I'd be stunned. Um, it would it would be beyond my wildest dreams to have that happen. But it's just a lot of guys in new positions and new places that don't really lend themselves to getting to that place. Uh, the Pac-12 is wide open, but I mean Cal is basically the same in the same place as like seven other teams. So we're far away from competing with Oregon or. I guess I'm not even sure who second is right now, but oh, sorry, Utah. Utah's the Pac-12 champion, so Utah and Oregon, like those are the two, those are the two standard bears, and we're still quite a ways from competing with them. So still in the middle. If you were to ask me to answer that question a little bit more seriously, I guess I'd what I'd say is I I think we're going to sort of revert back to some of the early Wilcox years, where I don't know if the defense will be quite as good as the uh, 
the Evan Weaver led units that kept Cal afloat when the offense was one of the worst offenses in the power five. But I think that like that sort of dynamic might return this year with the offense turning over so much of its personnel and being so young and with so many question marks at the two most important positions on the line. Um, but, you know, conversely, I think there's real excitement on, on the defensive side. And so if you were to ask me, like, to concoct a scenario where Cal overachieves, it's that the defense is as good as any other of the best of Wilcox's defense, and the offense finds just enough that we win a lot of gross games. Yeah, that's the formula for success I'm seeing this year, and it's definitely possible. Like, the defense, there's a lot of defensive depth. This is the deepest defense I think Cal has had. Like, that 2018 team was built on, I think, five, like a great secondary and amazing linebacker play and really solid defensive line. Um, this unit, the defensive line is in, is good at the, at the top and then kind of tapers off afterwards. And the linebackers should be just as strong as 2018 depth-wise. And then the secondary isn't as... It's not as good as that unit, but the starters should be solid. So... Yeah, I mean, if we have two or three of the young young freshmen, the true the red shirts, like step up and like contribute, then that is a formula for a really really good defense. And then suddenly every game is winnable. The flip side again is who knows what's going to happen with the offense, and particularly how are we going to grind? We're going to probably lose some games we shouldn't, which is always frustrating and always seems to happen. Like I'm already circling Arizona and just like dreading it with every fiber of my being. But yeah, I mean, the Notre Dame game is going to be tough and thankfully we avoid Utah, but I think, yeah, there's still just four or five games that are going to be pretty droppable. And then two more, we're going to have to probably coin flip and then another four that we're going to have to coin flip. So we'll see. It's, it'll be an exciting season, but I don't want to build up expectations for anyone. I think that's fair. But I also think that's a, that's a wrap, folks. Rob, you can give us your pick. For what? No, you'll hear my picks later. You'll hear my picks later down the line. You guys aren't always on this pod, so it doesn't matter. This is a... You'll hear us. You'll hear me and Andy talking about our picks all year long, up until the start of the Davis game. So, but uh, that's it for us on the Golden Bear Cast. Uh, once again, we are at Golden Bear Cast on Twitter. You can find us everywhere on all of your podcast services. And these guys are Nick Krantz and Avi Kanan, both part of Life California, as am I. You can find out all our written stuff at RightForCalifornia.com. Thanks again, Jets. As always, go Bears. Go Bears.
I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.